Elementary OS 7.1 is out this week with some colorful changes. Linux Mint is now living on the edge. Canonical is dealing with some crypto punks in their Snap Store. And glibc has gone a bit loony. All of this and so much more on this episode of This Week in Linux, your source for Linux good news. This episode of Twill is sponsored by Lindbit. More on them later. A new version of elementary OS has hit the streets. There are a ton of updates in this one, including kernel updates and driver updates based on the latest LTS point releases from Ubuntu. So that means we can't cover everything, but there are some cool highlights that I wanted to talk about, so let's do that. So first, let's talk about the new privacy features that come in elementary OS 7.1. There are plenty of new options in the system settings for privacy. For example, they let you restrict applications from starting automatically without your permission and running in the background without your permission. And there's also features for making sure that applications can't access your data without your permission. And they added the ability to prevent applications from pulling your location data, unless of course you give them permission. The next feature we're going to talk about is described on the release notes as a privacy feature, but I don't really think it is. For me, it feels more like a nice spring cleaning kind of tool. Now, don't get me wrong, I like the application and I like the idea, I just don't really see how it's a privacy-related thing. But with that said, let's talk about the housekeeping app. With this tool, you are already had the ability to clean up files in your trash bin, your downloads folder, and also all those random temporary OS files that are created while you're using it. And you could do that on a predefined schedule. Now this release of elementary OS 7.1, they also added the ability to easily clean up screenshot files. And as I was reading the release notes, I thought, huh, that's a good idea. Because I have a lot of files with file names that just say screenshot and then the date and the time because they're just files that I needed for only a short period of time, maybe to show an error or something to someone. So I don't need most of them anymore, but usually I forget to delete them and they just sit in a folder somewhere living in a sort of file purgatory. So it's nice when developers consider a usability convenience that I never knew I needed. And now I realize that I probably do need that. <laughs> now let's talk about the next stuff, which is the inclusivity and accessibility aspects of this release. This is great because they are adding features for demographics of users that are sometimes overlooked. And okay, well, probably most of the time overlooked, sadly. For example, they say they received feedback from folks who have vision-related disabilities. And now to address some of this feedback, they have made some changes to the installer. For example, the installer for Elementary OS 7.1 will now automatically play an audio prompt, letting you know the keyboard shortcut for turning on the screen reader. Also, they added some cool color effects for people who have color blindness. They have introduced five display filters designed for people who have protonopia, deuteranopia, and tritonopia, as well as some additional high contrast options. I have no idea if I said those right, but you know, let me know. <laughs> now for those people who just hate all color, then you can use the grayscale feature if you want. So if you're someone who just hates the idea of color and wants to live in a Mayberry-esque or Pleasantville-like society, then maybe this would help you get there, at least on your computer desktop. Okay, so maybe that's not the point of this feature. In the release notes, they say that it's to help people avoid distractions or alleviate screen addiction. And as someone who has an abundance of distractions and maybe a little bit of screen addiction, 
Okay, I think I might want to try this now. They also made some improvements to the App Center, which is the App Store in Elementary OS. Some of these improvements are related to the flat packs, especially those coming from the Flat Hub, as well as some nice UI and UX improvements to the App Center as a whole. But the next thing and the final thing that I wanted to talk about and highlight in this episode is the onboarding app. On many occasions and many episodes, I have recommended that every distribution of Linux implement a welcome screen of some sort. The purpose of the welcome screen is to make it easier for people to get started with their Linux distribution. But elementary OS does not come with a welcome screen. Instead, it comes with an onboarding application. Now, this application does give you the information and details about the operating system, such as how the guest account works and other details like that. But the onboarding app also does much more than that. It also comes with various interactive prompts to customize different pieces of the OS. Example of this is a look and feel prompt, so you can choose what you want to use, like a light mode or a dark mode for your windows specifically and your panels. Uh, or perhaps maybe a combination of both. So during the day, it's a light mode, and during the night, it's a dark mode. They call that the sunshine to sunset mode. I just like the way they described it. That's why I wanted to say that part. <laughs> it also lets you choose the accent color for whichever mode you want, so that's pretty cool. And you can also choose to activate a nightlight if you want, which will dim the screen and remove some of the blue light from the display. Now, this is because a lot of studies have shown that blue light at night specifically makes people stay up later and laptops, monitors, and smartphones, well, they give off a lot of blue light, like a heavy dose of blue light, which is not ideal, of course. Another thing the onboarding app does is that it lets you interact with other stuff that we already mentioned, such as the housekeeping tools. So you can choose which files that you want to use the housekeeping application to automatically remove while going through the onboarding app, which I like very much. Now, I still think that every distribution should at least have a welcome screen, but now I think every distribution should have an onboarding app instead. Now, to be fair, there are other distributions that have something that is similar to an onboarding app, but not exactly. I just, well, I just like the way that you go through the flow of the onboarding app in elementary OS. It, it's good. It's good. Now, there is something that I should let you know about that's sort of a caveat of elementary OS. Elementary OS does not have in-place upgrades as of now, which can be a downside for some people. This admittedly is an issue, but it's an issue that comes up once every year or two. The point releases from 7 to 7.1 do not require reinstall, but to go from 7 point whatever to 8, that could require a fresh install rather than an upgrade at some point. It's also possible that by then, that elementary OS would have solved this, but at the moment, we'll just have to wait and see. For now, if you'd like to learn more or check out elementary OS 7.1, then you'll find links in the show notes. The security company Qualys has discovered a vulnerability that could be a nasty security hole in the glibc library. This means that users of every Linux distribution that uses glibc will need to run some updates as soon as possible, which is most distributions. This particular security vulnerability is found in the environmental variable called glibc underscore tunables. And I first want to applaud the Qualys team for their work in finding this problem so that it can be fixed. But more importantly, I want to applaud them for their naming of this issue as Looney Tunables. 
such a good name. Also, the artwork with it, fantastic. Before we move on, we do need to move on from that. But before we move on, I do want to clarify that this is not the worst kind of vulnerability because it's not a remote attack vector. This is the second worst kind of vulnerability, I guess. And that is a root privilege escalation. So that's good, at least because right now we have a big problem. And if it was a remote execution vulnerability, we would have a very big problem. <laughs> so at least it's not that. Now, thanks to this vulnerability, it's trivial to take over most Linux systems as a root user. As the researchers noted, this exploitation method works against almost all of the SUID root programs that are installed by default on Linux. The flaw is a buffer overflow weakness in the glibc's id or ld.so dynamic loader, a crucial component responsible for preparing and executing programs on Linux systems. The vulnerability is triggered when processing the glibc underscore tunables environmental variable, making it a significant threat to system integrity and security. So how bad is this really? To quote Saheed Abbasi, I think I said that right, Qualys' Threat Research Unit Product Manager, this environment variable intended to fine-tune and optimize applications linked with glibc is an essential tool for developers and system administrators. Its misuse or exploitation broadly affects system performance, reliability, and security. The ease of which this buffer overflow can be transformed into a data-only attack could put countless systems at risk especially given the extensive use of glibc across all the Linux distributions. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Now, he didn't say all. I added that, so I just want to clarify he didn't actually say that part. Moving on. The good news is that Red Hat, Ubuntu, Debian, and Gentoo have all released their own updates. In addition, the upstream glibc code has been patched with the fix. And if you can't patch it for whatever reason, Red Hat has created a script that should work on most Linux systems to mitigate the problem by setting your system to terminate any set UID program invoked with glibc underscore tunables. It's never fun to talk about a security vulnerability, but it happens so rarely in Linux that we have to, especially one like this. So it's good news that there are patches and all you gotta do is upgrade. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, you'll find links in the show notes. Are you someone who wants to use Linux Mint, but you wanna do it on the edge? Well, the Edge ISO that we talked about on episode 229 of Twill was released this week. This new Edge ISO is for the purpose of running Mint on newer hardware. This new ISO will have a newer Linux kernel with Linux 6.2 and also other updates. I think this is great to see, but it is worth noting that I think this new initiative is likely made possible because of the latest LTS releases of Ubuntu, such as Ubuntu 22.04.3 that comes with the 6.2 kernel. And if that's the case, newer hardware support will likely have the same six-month delay as the Ubuntu LTS releases have. So it's still very good news, but I just want to let you know about that. So if you are a Linux Mint fan who has newer hardware, then this is going to be good for you. And I just had a conversation with someone yesterday who asked in our Discord server about newer hardware while using Linux Mint. So pretty good timing, Clem. If you want to be minty fresh, but also a little bit edgy, then you'll find links in the show notes. This episode of Twill is brought to you by Linbit. Linbit has been keeping digital businesses running for over 20 years. They're the makers of open source products like DRBD, which is high availability software that has been part of the Linux kernel since 2010 and LinStore, industry-leading open-source software-defined storage. 
Linbit has an active presence in the open source community as well because they collaborate with the community to help identify and build new features to their products. Limbit provides enterprise-grade software that runs on a variety of platforms without vendor lock-in, which is really cool because no matter what your OS is and no matter what kind of hardware you want to use, including off-the-shelf hardware, you're good to go with DRBD and LinStore. And also with DRBD and LinStore, you can have high-speed replicated block storage in almost any configuration, whether it's Kubernetes, Apache Cloud, or Open Nebula. There's even DRBD proxy for long-distance replication. Linbit provides really awesome services like DRBD, and DRBD is a really good way to make sure you have good data recovery and backups. And if you ever have like a cluster with multiple nodes and one of those nodes fails, you can have rest assurance that the backup nodes will have the data that you want. So if you're interested in checking out any of the software from Linbit, I highly recommend it. So go to linbit.com to check it out. That's L-I-N-B-I-T.com. There has been some news related to Canonical Snap Store, which is sure to add some fuel to the fire on the Snaps versus Flatpak debate. Canonical received several reports about fake crypto apps appearing in the Snap Store. It seems the goal of these apps is to steal user funds, and due to these reports, temporary restrictions have been put in place on the Snap Store while Canonical investigates the issue there's some good news about this. They have removed the reported snaps and based on what they've said so far anyway, and as the actions they have taken, it does not seem like these malicious applications or malicious snaps were exploiting security vulnerabilities in Snap or SnapD or the Snap Store itself. So that's really good to hear. Uh, as for the restrictions, I mentioned earlier, they, they have placed some of these and they're just temporary, but they are manual review requirements on new Snap registrations. This manual review is intended to thwart bad actors from registering names of legitimate applications or legitimate sounding applications and using that as an avenue for pushing malicious snaps to users. We don't know when this will be lifted, but it's good to see them taking actions like these because it is necessary. And as I mentioned earlier, this might add some fuel to the fire of the debate between snaps versus flat packs. But to be clear, this is not an incident unique to snaps. The FlatHub has also experienced similar issues. Even Arch Linux's user repository, or AUR, has also experienced things like this in the past. Pretty much any repository that allows user submission, well, at some point, experience something along the lines like this. Unfortunately, there are just some awful people in the world, and this kind of thing will probably happen again at some point, somewhere. And I realize some people will use this against snaps in the debate, so I just wanted to point out that Really, this has nothing to do with Snaps or the Snap Store itself. It's just an unfortunate consequence of having an app store where people can submit stuff. So there's that. Though the debate between which universal format is best is a very interesting one. And I am working on a video to talk about that. So be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel if you would like to learn more about that. But if you'd like to learn more about this, you'll find links in the show notes. Rust is a very popular programming language, and it's getting more and more popular every day. So being in the Rust ecosystem is likely going to be good in the long run for most of these companies. Now, one company, Ferro Systems, I think that's how you say it, has created their own Rust compiler called Ferrocene. They say that it's a Rust compiler that is focused on safety-critical and mission-critical environments. The reason we're talking about this Ferrocene compiler is that they're going to be open-sourcing the code for it under the Apache 2.0 license or the MIT license. 
Now, the Ferrocene Rust compiler is qualified for use within automotive and industrial environments because they've received various different ISO and IEC certifications. Also, Ferro System has already upstreamed various quality improvements to the main Rust compiler itself, so they know what they're doing. But there's kind of a catch to this. The source code for Ferrocene compiler is being open source. There's not a catch to that, but the way they're handling it is not exactly the typical approach one might expect from an open source project. There are two key differences between the way that the Ferro system approaches doing it and the way you would see in a typical open source project. The first difference is that they will not be accepting code from the general public. I don't, they're just going to continue developing it and then release the new code as open source, but not accept contributions. The second difference is that binaries will be available for the open source compiler, but only for those who purchase them with the commercial product. I don't understand the first difference, really, not accepting contributions, but if that's their thing, then sure, okay, why not? However, I will say that I do support the second difference of having binaries that you purchase and having source code that's open. I will probably get some flack for saying this, but open source, or the GPL specifically, requires source code to be given to those who get binaries, but it doesn't require you to give binaries to those who get source code because they could just compile it themselves. I mean, as far as I understand it, I could be wrong. But in this case, everyone's getting source code, so if they want to compile it and use it, then they can. Although compiling a compiler is kind of funny. Anyway, the reason I wanted to feature on the show is this particular difference, because I think this is a good way to be both open source and be compatible with the GPL, like the letter of the GPL and even the spirit of the GPL, while also being able to commercially be sustainable. Now, I'm very curious what you think about this particular piece of the topic, the whole topic as well, but I'm very curious about this particular piece of the topic. So let me know in the comments what you think. And if you'd like to learn more, you'll find links in the show notes. Are you a musician or some kind of audio engineer, or maybe an audio enthusiast? Would you like to have a professional DAW or digital audio workstation to use on Linux? Well, then you can use Bitwig or Traction Waveform or Reaper and even the open source Ardor. But a new contender has entered the ring and in the blue corner is Studio One from PreSonus. Studio One is an all-in-one DAW or digital audio workstation that lets you create music from scratch using virtual instruments, loops, and composer tools. It lets you capture audio from connected instruments and other audio equipment, like you can mix it, then you can master it, you can export compositions to professional standards, and all of this sort of stuff. It offers a fully featured multi-track recording and editing environment where you can record, arrange, and edit row after row of audio and MIDI tracks and use advanced automation, effect chains, and plugins to sculpt and manipulate and play around with how I sound. Studio One is a closed source application, but I welcome them to the Linux platform because the more apps we get on Linux, the more users we get on Linux, and then the more users we get, the more people will see how awesome open source is, and then more companies will open source their applications. It's a long game, people, but I say let's play it. The Studio One 6.5 Linux beta explicitly states that it supports Ubuntu 23.04 with Wayland only. It also requires an Intel Core i3 or AMD A10 processor or better of those, and a Vulkan 1.1 compatible graphics card, and a fully functional Jack audio server. 
Although that last part is not necessarily a requirement because through my research, I found many reports of people saying that if you switch to the Jack version of Pipewire, it works just great. So that's cool. This product is currently beta. So as I mentioned, the PreSonus isn't really providing official support for it right now because it's still in beta. But there are some known issues and feature limitations to know about, most of which have been noted on the Studio One Linux support page, which I'll have linked in the show notes. Now, Studio One is not free to use, but it does offer a free tier called Prime. And this tier is quite reasonable, actually, in terms of functionality. It doesn't limit you all that much. You get unlimited audio and MIDI tracks and access to a decent selection of effects, but it's kind of hidden away. You'll have to sign up and then select a free demo first, and then you will see the option to sign up for the Prime tier. Now, I think this is great, and I want to see more and more applications like this coming to the Linux platform because professional software is a prerequisite to having professional users use the platform. Okay, most professionals. I'm an exception to that. I was willing to use professional proprietary piece of software in a Windows virtual machine for over a decade so I could use Linux, but I don't think that's the common use case. If you'd like to learn more, you'll find links in the show notes. The latest release of Chimera OS is now out and it has improvements pretty much across the board. If you're a gamer, especially a gamer wanting to get something similar to SteamOS on a handheld like the ROG Ally, this is a distro for you to check out for sure. Core elements have been updated, such as the Linux kernel at 6.5.3, Open Gamepad UI 0.21.7, and Mesa Drivers 23.1.7. There's also a variety of device fixes and enhancements for devices like the ROG Ally, the Anio Air Plus, GPD Win 4, Aya Neo 2, and the Aya Neo Geek, and the various Ein Loki de- I have no idea what these are. Chimera OS also now has a dynamic swap file, which they said has been reported to boost a lot of games. The default one gigabyte is like the Steam Deck and it's compatible with tools like the the Cryo Utilities. The details about which is better, a swap partition or a swap file, is a bit complicated, but suffice it to say, in my opinion at least, a swap file is much better, so that's awesome. There are some improvements for game scope support and they have improved emulation retro games for the PSP, PlayStation 2, and the Nintendo 64. Work has also continued on the Open Gamepad UI, an alternative front end to Steam Big Picture, which now includes performance profile per game, power tool support for the entire AMD 7000 APU series, along with various input improvements. I don't know how many people this will affect, but they did say that they had to remove NVIDIA support due to having too many problems with it. So if that affects you, then there you go. If you'd like to learn more about this particular release or Chimera OS itself, you'll find links in the show notes. If you ever wanted to try out Ubuntu Touch or a Volaphone, then I have some news for you because Ubuntu Touch and Volaphone are teaming up to do a giveaway where you can get a Volaphone 22 running Ubuntu Touch. There's also a promotion happening right now if you purchase a Volaphone, then a donation will be given to the UbiPorts team for Ubuntu Touch, which is pretty cool. So let's talk about the giveaway though. There are three questions you have to answer, and then you send an email to a specific address with a specific subject. I'll have all of that in the show notes. You can get to that details. But you have to answer these three questions. First, which company originally developed Ubuntu Touch? Secondly, what is the name of the UbiPorts mascot? And the last question is, in which country are Volaphones manufactured? So the answer to the first question, 
Come closer. I'm just kidding. I'm not actually going to do that, UV ports. Don't worry about it. So if you do want to participate in the giveaway, you'll find the information in the show notes for how to do it. The open source digital painting software Krita has released Krita 5.2 this week. This is a major update that brings a lot of cool features and a lot of under the hood improvements. It's been over a year since the last release of Krita, and then this release, they have completely rewritten the audio playback functionality animation using the MLT framework. They are also using FFmpeg as a built-in dependency for video exporting for animations, and this means that two major pain points for animation got tackled with this release with the synchronized playback of audio and the simplifying video export. Also, Krita 5.2 brings major improvements to text handling with a completely revamped text shape engine that provides support for emojis, very important, text on path, text in shape, open type fonts, vertical text, wrap text, and also other features. There's also many improvements to the JPEG XL image support in this release, plus the transform tool can now transform any and all selected layers and a brand new color selector that supports wide gamut color spaces has been added, and they rewrote the Brush Engine settings backend to prepare it for an upcoming UI redesign. Honestly, Krita is so cool, and it's such a powerful creativity app that there's just way too much to talk about. We don't really have time to do that. So instead, I'm going to point you to the show notes where you will find the links to try it out for yourself. And these links, by the way, include an app image and a flat pack. So you should be able to try it out on any Linux distro that you want to. I mean, I, I love universal app formats. They're, they're awesome. Also, Krita. Check out Krita. <laughs> links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show and want to be kept up to date with what's going on in the Linux and open source world, then be sure to subscribe. And of course, remember to like that smash button. If you'd like to support the show and the Tux Digital Network, then consider becoming a patron by going to tuxdigital.com membership. And when you do, you're going to get a bunch of cool perks like access to patron-only sections of our Discord server, which is tuxdigital.com slash discord, and much, much more. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux as if I were a t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt that I'm wearing right now at tuxdigital.com slash store. Plus, while you're there, check out all the other cool stuff we have like hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and just so much more at tuxdigital.com slash store. Plus, quick note, we're actually going to be switching stores and the back ends. So there's going to be a whole new thing with some new products, but that also means that some of the products that are currently there are no longer going to be on the new store. So if you want some like OG type of Tux Digital swag, some of that's not going to be there. I don't know which yet, just so you know, in case you want to check it out. Now I'll see you next time for another episode of your source for Linux news. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell. I hope you're doing swell. Be sure to ring the notification bell, and until next time, I bid you farewell.